I invite you this morning, if you have your Bibles, to open up to 1 Peter chapter 4. We're continuing our sermon series through the book of 1 Peter. As you're opening up to 1 Peter chapter 4, I want to take a moment to remind you of a couple of absolutely important things. First, inside your bulletin and also on the web is the daily reading schedule for our seven-minute challenge during Lent. And then on the back, of course, is the questions to reflect upon for your small group or to use for personal reflection. So you'll notice on the reading schedule for this next week, on Thursday, April 3rd, we're asking for a day of prayer and fasting for the facility, de- facility decision that lays before us at King of Glory. Now, I realize, as it's been spoken to me multiple times, that this is a new concept for many. Thing. We realize that this is a step of faith, that fasting may not be something that's in uh, our daily, our weekly, our monthly, our yearly, our life routine thing. But what we're asking is really for a step of faith here to do something out of the ordinary, to put ourselves in focus, to put ourselves underneath the authority of God. And so what we're asking on Thursday is maybe for you the step of faith is to simply not have dinner and use that time for extended prayer and study of Scripture. Maybe you're ready to take that step of faith to use the whole day as a time of fasting whenever you're hungry, using that as a reminder for prayer and study of Scripture as we come to an important decision for King of Glory. So therefore, over the next week, We encourage prayer throughout the whole week, but we really want to encourage corporately that on Thursday we would enter into a time of prayer and fasting together. So therefore, in regards to how we move forward with that decision about a facility, tonight at 6.30 at the Sycamore Center, there is another forum. If you want to participate, ask questions of clarification, or if you want to share some concerns or affirmations that you have for other people to hear, you are invited to come tonight at 6.30, and then we'll have a meeting next Thursday to vote on the proposal from King of Glory. We recognize that this is an emotional issue that everybody has a vested interest in. We recognize that there's a a lot at stake, and due to our passion for King of Glory, uh, it can get a little bit heated, which is just fine. We want to continue the process that we've had been going, an open process of open communication together in this final week, and all of it bathed in prayer, and then prayer and fasting on Thursday. So please, Participate in those different opportunities that are coming up, and please maybe take that step of faith for prayer and fasting. Let's turn our hearts now to God's Word this morning. 1 Peter chapter 4, beginning with the first verse. 1 Peter chapter 4, beginning with verse 1. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live the rest for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached, even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the Spirit the way God does. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, Use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. 
in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To Him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. I'm almost certain that none of you when at the grocery store look and say, what line is going to be the longest? What line is going to cause me to get anxious? What line is going to cause me to get angry? And then choose that line. If you're anything like me when you go to the grocery store and you're in a hurry, you're looking for what? The shortest line with the least amount of customers and that also seem to have the least amount of product in their carts. So you go in, you're looking around, it's full. Hey, there's an open line. It looks like it's going to go fast. So you pull into the line, but then what happens? You notice that the person in front of you has alcohol in their cart, and you also notice that they look on the young side. So therefore, what are they going to have to do? Call over the manager to look at their license. Well, as you continue on, guess what happens next? The debit card is rejected. It's probably all happened to us at one point. Sorry, ma'am, sir, this doesn't work. Well, try this one. The credit card doesn't work. Well, I have some cash. Well, at, by this point in time, what's happened? People have come in behind you in line, and there's nowhere to go. And you're looking over there thinking, oh, if I would have went there, I'd be out the door right now. And you're beginning to feel some anxiety in yourself, and not only that, but now the people behind you in line, you start to hear some mumbling under their breath. Oh, Reg, get it in order. Just come take get it going. Thing. And then what happens? Well, here's some cash. Oh, I'm sorry, sir or ma'am. You're $2.18 short. You're going to have to take some product back. Thing. Well, maybe we should take this. Oh, how about this back? Or how about this back? And now the person behind you, oh, stupid customers, stupid registered lady, stupid person that's in front of me, da-da-da-da-da, and now your anxiety's even building more thing. Does this not sound like an enjoyable experience? Who would not want to do this every time you're at the grocery store? And who would sign up for it? No one would sign up for it. And who would have thought that when you were signing up for the Christian life, you were actually signing up to stand in the line at the grocery store and be tested and be in unfamiliar territory, uncomfortable territory? I would argue that the Christian life is a lot, is a lot like standing in line at the grocery store in the midst of a bad situation. You see, the Christian life is not one where one is baptized or when one comes to Christ that they're zipped away to heaven. The Christian life you could describe is basically a really long waiting period. And we see it described in different ways in the book of 1 Peter. In our lesson today in verse 7 it says, the end of all things is at hand. In other words, the author is saying, hey, be aware at any moment Jesus may return and establish his kingdom. At other places in 1 Peter, it says, be ready for the day of visitation. Or it encourages the readers, hey, be strong, rejoice. You know there's an imperishable inheritance coming. Basically, hey, you're waiting because the Christian life is really a life that's lived between, between two worlds. We're here on earth, but we realize that earth is, is not all it was intended to be, that it has fallen because of sin, and therefore, 
God has got a great plan of redemption where all of creation is going to be renewed to a new kingdom. But yet, that hasn't happened in completion yet. So we're in between times, and, and we're in between what you could call the great events in Christian redemption. So Christ, the Messiah, has already come. The Messiah has already died. The Messiah has already conquered death. But yet, the Messiah has not returned yet to establish the kingdom forever. We're in a waiting period. And in the midst of this waiting period, there's a lot of trouble. There's a lot of temptation. So the question is, how shall we live in the middle of this waiting period? How shall we live as we are between two worlds? How shall we live while we stand in line at the grocery store? The challenge with the Christian life is that there's a variety of traps before us. And we could talk about a ton of different little temptations this morning, but we want to focus in on two traps that exist for us as followers of Christ. The first trap is the comparison trap. Maybe the most dangerous of them all. That situation where we find ourselves looking around and comparing ourselves to others and saying, well, how come they have it that good when I actually deserve it better than they have it? Or we begin to, to look around and we say, well, I'm actually pretty good in comparison to so-and-so. I've been a lot more faithful. So we enter into a game of looking horizontally at those around us for our strength, or we look around us horizontally for permission to do something. And even in the Christian circles we do this. Well, I mean, they're a Christian church and they're doing X, so it must be okay. All of a sudden, the source of authority has become whoever we compare ourselves to. The comparison trap is so dangerous because where the comparison trap leaves us is, even th is either thinking of ourselves as more superior to others or thinking of ourselves as inferior to others. It causes the woe is me complex. So in the comparison trap, we're basically looking to others for permission. We're looking to others and complaining a little bit. We're looking to others to elevate ourselves when in reality... It takes our eyes off of the prize. The Apostle Paul writes in Philippians chapter 3, he says, For I forget the things that lie behind, and I press on toward the goal, the call of heaven. He's keeping his eyes on the prize. On, he's keeping his eyes on Jesus Christ, who's calling him heavenward. But when we're in the comparison trap, what do we do? We take our eyes off of the prize and turn and put our eyes on those around us. In the middle of doing that, what else have we done? We've made someone else judge or ourselves judge rather than Jesus the judge. So we hear in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 5, it says, hey, everybody's going to have to stand before the judgment seat. But when we enter into the comparison trap, we actually make ourselves the judge by saying, well, they're doing it that way, so I'm actually in pretty good standing. Or we make them judge by them determining what we do is right or wrong when in reality, there is only one judge. The comparison trap is extremely dangerous. It can lead us to a life of anxiety. It can lead us to a life of greed and jealousy. Or the comparison trap can also lead us to a life of self-righteousness, where we just declare ourselves better than those 
who we are comparing ourselves to. The comparison trap, we must escape from it. But the second great danger for us as Christians is that we would follow a self-made portrait of the Christian life rather than the revelation given in Scripture. There's a great danger that we would make the painting, that we would make the picture from our perception, from our ability to understand of what the Christian life should be like. So for example, this is a common thought that's spoken a lot today, and it's in various books, and people use it as a response to, to uh, arguing against a God that we see in the Bible. A person will say, well, I could never believe in a God that does that. Or I could never believe in a God like that. Well, in essence, what a person is saying, I can only believe in a God who lines up with my way of thinking. Or I can only believe in a God who will fit in the box that I have defined. It's basically just living a life of following a God who's a self-portrait, one who you have defined. And this is a danger for all of us, that, that what we do is we paint the portrait of what the Christian life is supposed to be. You see, the challenge is, we live in a culture where there's tons of Christian books written all the time, right? So we go to Barnes & Noble today, you could walk in, the first book you might see might says, your best life right now, or your best life is ahead of you, or seven steps to pure happiness. And it's in the Christianity section. And so you read this book, and it's got this vision of this glorious life, so now that's the vision you have of what it means to be a Christian. But in reality, the description given in Scripture is something much different. That's why we constantly have to take our thoughts and the thoughts of others who are teaching us back to Scripture and see how do they align. Maybe this author is bringing out a good point, but maybe the whole picture doesn't align with the complete picture of Scripture. There's a great danger this morning that we would draw, we would write what it means to be a Christian rather than looking at the revelation of Scripture. And so this morning, that's one of the reasons we go for, through a book like 1 Peter. It just lays out the picture for us of what God is describing to be the life of one who follows Jesus Christ. And so what we're getting here today is we're getting an interesting description from 1 Peter 4 and chapter 3 of what it means to follow Christ, that, that picture of what the Christian life usually looks like. And it might not be the cutest picture. It might not be the funnest picture, but it is reality. That's the beauty of the Bible. The Bible deals with reality. It does not gloss over anything. It does not give a, a picture of unrealistic expectations. It just clearly reveals what's going to happen, what should be expecting, what we should expect to happen. And so in 1 Peter chapter 4, we get a clear picture of what should happen to us as followers of Christ. So this morning, we receive a bunch of commands here in 1 Peter chapter 4, basically saying, hey, this is how you live while you're waiting. This is how you live while you're standing in line. And we start in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 1 there. It's basically laying out for us, saying, hey, arm yourself with the same attitude of Christ who suffered. This theme, suffering of Christ, is found throughout the whole book of 1 Peter. 
And if you look back at chapter 2 and chapter 3, it really funnels in on this idea that because Christ suffered, we also should be willing to suffer. Now, this is not exactly um, something to grab onto and really cherish thing. What it's really saying is she's saying, hey, Jesus wanted to follow his Father's will even to the point where it caused him physical pain. So Jesus was willing to do whatever it took to follow his Father's will. So for example, think back to the garden. What does Jesus pray? Not my will, but thy will be done. Jesus knew what was coming, but yet he was willing to undergo the persecution because that's how much he wanted to please his Father. And basically the Scripture is saying to us today, we need to have that same attitude. Do whatever it takes, even if it's to the point of persecution and suffering, to please God. So that's one aspect of the suffering of Christ, is that it's an example for us to do whatever it takes. But then there's another element to the suffering of Christ. And that is that the suffering of Christ should actually be realized in our lives today through the way we live. The suffering of Christ should be realized in our lives through the way we live. What I mean by that is this. So often when we think of the death of Jesus on the cross, it's a theory, right? We just think of, I believe in Jesus dying on the cross for my sins thing. And it's, and it's something that's, that's out there that it's really more a statement of belief than it is a way of living. But if you look back at 1 Peter chapter 2 and chapter 3 when it's talking about the death of Jesus Christ, it's always using the language that his death was to free us from our sin. That his death was to, to bring us so that we could now live in the spirit rather than the flesh. So, if we are to be affected by the suffering of Christ, what should actually be happening is that our daily lives are affected. That our behavior is changed, actually, by the suffering of Jesus Christ. If we would look at our behavior and see no difference, then all the death of Jesus Christ is to us is a theory and a statement of belief. We're not called to have a statement of belief. I believe Jesus died for my sins but rather we're called to have a life that's defined by the suffering of Christ. And when we have a life that's defined by the suffering of Christ, what we see happen is that we no longer live the rest of our time in the flesh for human passions, but rather for the will of God. When we realize that Christ's suffering was not just to give us a legal transaction of forgiveness, but rather was to free us, and that Christ's suffering was to lay an example that we go to whatever it takes to follow the will of God. When we realize those things, we enter into a life then of passionate pursuit of the will of God. Basically, you kind of summarize it this way, that as followers of Christ, we are to follow the patterns of Christ rather than the patterns of this world. So if you look in here in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse, verse 3. So verse 3 lays out all of these vices or all of these different behaviors that are taking place in the community. And these different behaviors, these different vices, they're basically saying, hey, now as a follower of Christ, you're not being affected by these vices. They're no longer in control of you. Or you could say it this way, these are patterns that you do not follow. So as a follower of Christ, you're not defined by a a pattern of drunkenness, 
by a pattern of, of lawless idolatry or of, or of sensuality. Rather, you're defined by a pattern of obedience to God. You can kind of summarize all of these things in verse 3 of just kind of saying, following the pattern of any time the flesh wants something, you follow it. And really what's being said here is, hey, anytime the flesh speaks does not mean permission to do what the flesh says. Anytime the flesh speaks does not mean permission to do what the flesh says. Now this goes way against how the majority of us think all the time. Because we use phrases all the time like, right? Well, is that how you feel? That's what you should do then. Trust your gut. Actually, Scripture would say almost the opposite. Don't do what you feel. Don't trust your, your gut. First look and see, does that feeling or does that leading of the gut match up with the royal pattern of Christ? Or does it match up with some of the patterns of the flesh that are laid out in Scripture? We're not called to follow the feelings of the flesh. Rather, we're called to submit to the Spirit of God. This morning, as we wait in line, as we wait for the best that is yet to come, what we're called to do is not do whatever we feel, but rather submit to the leading of the Spirit of God so that we can honor God. And this morning, if our life is defined by the cross of Jesus Christ, our life is going to have new patterns to it. We're going to seek to, to live this faith in a new way of obedience to Christ versus obedience to the flesh. So the very first thing we see here then is basically the author saying, hey, the first exhortation as you're waiting is, <laughs> is put away those behaviors that come from the flesh rather than those things that are submissive to the Spirit of God. This is a real challenge for us. This is why it's so important for us to have outside voices in our lives. People that, that can come alongside and say, hey, you know what? That doesn't line up with what God's Word is saying. That doesn't line up with the pattern of Christ. We need those outside voices that have authority over us and that know the Scripture, that can help guide us, that can help kind of guide our, our conscience in a sake, that for an instance, guide our conscience, or can help us understand if our, the feelings that we have are in line with God's Word or are actually part of our fallen nature. Do you have a voice in your life today? Do you have an outside voice of someone that can speak authority into your life today, that can challenge you, that can help line up your life with the Word of God? We're being called to a life of putting to death the patterns that bring dishonor to God and rather enter into a pattern that's laid out for us by the life of Jesus Christ. And then now what we see moving on here in verse 7 through verse 11 is the author now basically enters into a whole different list of things and we could spend 45 minutes on each thing and so I've got till 6.30 tonight so I think we can probably get it done. Thing. A bundle of different little commands here, verses 7 through 11. I just want to focus in on, on, on a couple of them and cover them at a high level. So we're waiting in line for Jesus to return. Verse 7, therefore be self-controlled and sober-minded. In other words, in other words, have the ability to step back and think clearly and be able to govern your behavior. Followers of Christ, because we have been given the gift of the Holy Spirit, we actually do have a little extra power 
Not power that we can control, but power that we can submit to. So that we actually should be able to, to put a little governor on our feelings sometimes. We should be able to exhibit a little bit of discipline. And where it begins is begins to be able to think clearly, and he says is sober-minded. In other words, being able to, to step back and think through the situation. The greatest danger for us is that in the heat of the battle, we start making decisions. When our emotions are flying and there's a bunch of other voices, when sometimes we should just step back, reflect through Scripture, reflect through prayer, reflect through conversation with others, and then make a decision. God's calling us to a level of self-control and the ability to think clearly. In the middle of thinking clearly and self-control then, it's not just this idea of, well, we need everybody to think, think clearly and self-control so everybody can have perfect personal behavior. It's not just about having perfect personal behavior. That's not the goal. The goal is a community of love that we see here in verse 5. It says, Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. In other words, we're supposed to be in a community that's such saturated in love that that love helps us overcome the little things that take place. But it's, it's not saying, well, hey, we got a credit and debit relationship here. So when you love, actually, God just applies a credit to your account. Hopefully you get enough credits to overcome the debits. It's, it's laying out this idea of kind of 1 Corinthians 13 as well, that in a community of love, you're able to overcome some of the missteps. And, and I think if we use the illustration of marriage, if I asked this morning for a couple to raise their hand that has never had a misstep thing, I think we would need to do some talking afterwards. Every couple's had some missteps. There's not, there's not perfection in the way that we, we treat one another and in the way we act. But yet, those missteps are able to overcome when it's in a community of love. So when that, when that love of Christ is present, you can overcome those missteps. And basically, what the author is saying here is in the people of God, there should be that community of love that when those missteps happen, they actually don't end everything because there's a love present that overcomes all. And so this love that's present is really the love that's defined by Jesus Christ. It says in 1 John chapter 3 and chapter 4, where it says, we know love by this, that Christ laid down his life. So love is really an attitude of service. So what we're supposed to have is an attitude of, of serving one another, an attitude of, of preferential treatment, you could say, where we put others before ourselves. And when we're doing that, when we're living in that type of community, then we can live with little bumps in the road. But if there's not an attitude of service, then when there are bumps in the road, those bumps become mountains. But we're to be in a community where we have an attitude, a preferential attitude of looking out for one another's best interest. And this, this community is not supposed to be just this inward love towards one another, but it's also supposed to be this, this community where there's hospitality. Verse 9, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. There's something really important that we need to see here. That's that verse 9 comes before verse 10. And you might say, well, obviously, Pastor, 9 before 10. A lot of times in the church, we put verse 9 actually after verse 10 because we say only who, those who are gifted in hospitality need to extend hospitality. 
Hospitality. It is not a gifting for a select few, but hospitality is a command for the family of God. That all of us as the children of God actually have a command to open ourselves up to strangers with the hope that they as well would become part of the family of God. Hospitality is simply expressing brotherly love to another. Do we have an open hand that says, hey, our family is your family. The, the people of God is not supposed to be this secluded club that exists. And, and we have this love for one another, but we don't have an open hand towards anyone else. The family of God is supposed to be this, this community of people where love permeates the atmosphere, while at the exact same time, there's this open door that says, stranger, become a family member. We're called to radical hospitality of opening ourselves up to others. And this is a command of God for all the people of God. So you're standing in line and the guy or gal behind you is starting to get a little impatient. That does not give us the right to get a little impatient with them. But rather we are still called to have an open hand towards them. To have an open opportunity for them to be part of our family. As followers of Christ, we've got a different pattern that's supposed to define our lives. As followers of Christ, we're supposed to be self-controlled, thinking clearly, and saturated in love for one another and a community of hospitality. And as followers of Jesus Christ, we should be people who are constantly exercising the gifts given to us. Look with me here at 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 10. As each has received a gift, Use it to serve one another. As each. In other words, you have all received a gift. All of those who are in the family of God are in the family of God because you're dwelt by the whole, indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Therefore, you have a gift because the Holy Spirit is seeking to, to use you to build up the body of Christ. Everybody here this morning that's in the family of God has a gift that can be used for the sake of the church. And notice what it says here. In that verse, underline this part of the point of the gift. Use it to serve one another. The purpose of the gift is to build up the body of Christ. In other words, your gift is needed in order for the church to flourish. Our personal gifts are not used for our personal enjoyments, but rather our gifts that have been, well, they're gifts, so therefore they've been given thing are to be used for the building up of the body of Christ. You know, in the church, there's always these volunteer issues, right? Thing The, the church has got the issue where 20% of the people do 80% of the work. It's kind of that way, that way everywhere, which is such a weird dynamic in the church because it goes against the core teaching, a, a, a core understanding of Scripture. And the core understanding is not, of Scripture is not, well, hey, more hands will make less work. That's what we try to use to recruit volunteers is, hey, if everybody helps, it'll be less for the few. No, that should not be the recruiting tool in the church. The recruiting tool in the church is, in order for the body to function properly, we need each member participating. So in order for us to function fully, full speed of accomplishing our mission, we need every gift being exercised. This morning, you've got a gift. 
something that God has gifted you. And, and a lot of times it, it looks way different for everyone. Sometimes the Holy Spirit will come and just give a gift for someone for just a moment. Other times, maybe you've been created with this unique talent and the Holy Spirit empowers that talent and uses it for the building of the community. There's a wide diversity. But at the end of the day, the reality is all of us have to use whatever we've been given for the building up of the church. You know what happens when you don't exercise? I mean, I don't have this issue, but I've heard thing that, that um, I've heard that it's a really bad idea to try and get ready for a 5K a couple of weeks in advance. Do you know what happens? It's not good. After you're done, you're like, I'll never do that again. Because you have to exercise to, to, to keep it in shape, to, to keep going. The same is, same is true with our gifts. That God's given us a gift. If we're not going to use the gift, this is not popular. God's going to diminish the gift. Take the gift away. The question is, is are we faithful in the use of it? Therefore, we need to exercise those gifts. So the gifts that we've been given, first are to build up the body of Christ. And when they're used in their proper role, then what happens? God is glorified because God's church is built. So if you look here at the end there in verse 11, it says, in order that everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. So when gifts are being exercised, the church is being built up, God is being glorified. And there's a key phrase in here. Serve in the strength that God provides. So some of you respond, well, I could never do that. That's actually the perfect response because then you're not relying on your own strength. You're relying on the strength that God provides. Some of you may be thinking this morning that I've done a pretty good job. I've served on a lot of committees in my church life and, and I've, I, you know, I think I've used all my gifts. But the problem is this you've actually never stepped out in faith and done something that's going to require something more than you can provide yourself. So you might be thinking to yourself, oh, preschool, you want me to spend time with the preschool class? Do you know what happened with my own children when they were that age? It was a disaster. You might be thinking that to yourself. You're the perfect person for our preschool class because we know you can't do it on your own, but you're going to do it with the strength that God provides. You may be thinking to yourself this morning, I could never go and, and visit someone in their home. I, I don't know what I'm going to say. I've, I've never prayed with someone individually. Perfect. You're stepping out in faith, not relying on your own strength, but rather relying that God is going to show up and do something. I've heard multiple missionaries, and I, and I fall on more of the conservative spectrum on this whole issue of speaking in tongues and, and prophecy like that, but I've spoken with multiple missionaries that are in the exact same camp as I am theologically on, on those issues, and then when they go somewhere, Africa or somewhere else, they come back and they've said to me, you know what happened? I started speaking in a language that I did not know. And these are not like weird people. These are, these are normal, every people that you'd have coffee with. Thing. What happened? They went over there and they said, God, I'm not sure what I'm going to do, but I'm going to start preaching. And then God allows them to speak in another language that they've never spoken. They're stepping out in faith. It may not be as radical as that thing, 
but it might be as radical as giving you the necessary patience for that preschool class. For some of you, that would be just as big a step as speaking tongues in the middle of Africa. The question's pretty simple, though. Are we stepping out in faith to be used by God where we rely on God's strength and God gets the glory? So as we wait, as we wait, the question is, how will we wait? And there's one simple phrase that basically sums it all up. After this whole message, you can basically sum it all up by two words. Consider Christ. Consider Jesus Christ. Consider what Jesus Christ did. Christ pursued the will of God above all else, even to the point of suffering. Consider Christ. He loved his neighbor as himself. Consider Christ. He showed radical hospitality. He was constantly getting in trouble for what? Opening himself up to strangers. Consider Christ. And when you consider Jesus Christ, there is no other response than a life of entering into his pattern, than a life of radical obedience to him alone. It's going to be a long wait. And it's going to be a difficult wait. But we have one who has already waited on our behalf. We have one who has already conquered. His name is Jesus. Let us pray. Almighty God, we give thanks this morning that you have given us the gift of the body of Christ that we can wait together and that we can live together in this journey. Lord, this morning I pray that you would move upon each person's heart, making them aware of where they need to take a step of faith whether it be in extending hospitality, whether it be in practicing love in our community, whether it be in exercising their gifts. And God, I pray this morning that you would put to death in us the flesh and enable us to be obedient to the Spirit. God, we thank you for your kindness. We thank you for your patience. In Jesus' name, amen.